if the Bible makes far more sensible that if our the Christian culture, then why not take the next step and ask, maybe this isn't all just some gigantic fluke coincidence, but that there might be something that brings this all together. And I hope that many others who are kind of seem to be somewhere on that journey have something like that C.S. Lewis experience of, of where suddenly the, the, the reason and the imagination all came together in the person of Jesus Christ. And and I, I hope, yeah, we, we will see many more of a kind of road to Damascus type experience of yeah. some of these thinkers who seem to be on that road, but haven't quite, you know, been knocked off their horse just yet. Something happened in, in the midst of this culture. What you're describing, your experience is all of a sudden now. And it's an intentional Welcome to Faith in the Folds, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Bird. Joining me today is a very special guest from across the pond, Justin Brierley. Justin is a longtime radio and podcast host who has interviewed many of Europe's and North America's leading intellectuals in conversations about the intersection of religion, the sciences, culture, society, and politics, just to name a few important topics. In addition to hosting an extraordinary radio show, Justin is also an author. In 2017, he wrote, Unbelievable, why after 10 years of talking with atheists, I'm still a Christian. And part of our conversation today will deal with his new book coming out later this year, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. Justin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. It's a delight to be with you. Glad to have you. I have enjoyed your uh, work over the last few years, I think in um, it's around, I don't remember precisely what it was. Hey, well, let's just say about five years ago, I think I ran across some mm. of your things and then gradually have been sharing clips with some of my best friends. Uh, I think maybe sometime la in the last two years, you uh, produced just a 10-minute clip on you know, some of your uh, – some highlights of why you're still a Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, one of those might have included uh, Douglas Murray, a gentleman that we'll mention later on today. Mm -hmm. Sent it off to my friends and thought, guys, this is just the best quick summary of why why someone could still be a Christian. I think you need to check this out. They have enjoyed it. So, Justin, thank right. you for joining us on the show. Oh, it's it's my pleasure to be here, and I'm so pleased to hear you know what I've been doing has has been helpful in in your personal journey, Kevin, and hopefully with some of your friends. And uh, yeah, it's it's been an absolute privilege to to be able to host so many conversations across the. The divide between Christians and atheists and uh, fun to explore the, the way the conversation is still changing even in this new book. Yes, sir. Justin, tell us how you began po hosting a big conversation podcasts, uh, how you got to do what you're doing. Uh, you know, basically give us uh, give us a short version of your life story. <laughs> well, the very potted history is I, I did grow up in a Christian family, found my own faith really around the age of 15 when things kind of came alive for me. But went through seasons of doubt as a young university student. Um, there were plenty of sceptical people at Oxford University where I was studying. Um, but at the same time, ran into some great Christian thinkers of the past, people like C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton and others. I didn't really know the the phrase Christian apologetics at the point where I was reading them. But that that came to be an important part of my life later on as I went on from that, having got married and 
um, uh, started a family life and everything, uh, I, I started in Christian broadcasting. So I, I, I worked for over 20 years for Premier Christian Radio. But when I began, it was really about finding my feet in journalism, interviewing, writing, researching. And early on, I went to the boss of the radio station I was working for and said, uh, I would love to host a show where we bring Christians and non-Christians together for dialogue and debate. And that's how The Unbelievable Show was born wow. some 17 plus years ago. And and that was really a, a wonderful outlet for this interest I had developed in Christian apologetics, the intellectual case for faith. Um, and it gave me the priv privilege, as I say, of, of hosting so many hundreds of conversations between Christians and non-Christians that eventually found its way into a, a book um, about, well, 2017, the book came out. Uh, unbelievable why after 10 years of talking with atheists, I'm still a Christian. I feel like when that gets a revision, I'm going to obviously have to change the byline to say, you know, <laughs> 17, 18, 20 years, I don't know. 10 plus but, um, years, yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, so um, but really, I think, yeah, in those first 10 years of hosting the show, it gave me enough to be able to write from my own perspective why I felt actually there is a compelling case to be made for Christian faith. And I was doing it very specifically over and against another worldview, specifically atheism or mm. naturalism, because most of the dialogues and discussions that I'd had on the show had very much been in response to the new atheism, which was just in the ascendancy at the time the show mm. got going back in 2005. So that was really the um, the kind of milieu in which uh, my own thinking on Christianity developed. Um, it was very much, I think, something where the church was being called to respond to some of these quite, you know, uh, dif difficult to, to handle arguments from new atheists. Uh, some of these well-known personalities in arts and science and culture who were very much coming out against Christianity. But it was a wonderful opportunity, especially when I had some of those figures on the show, to be able to to really, I suppose, have those conversations in the public sphere and, and take Christian Christianity out of a sort of the church bubble and say, well, look, can it stand on its own two feet? Um, and in the process to meet some amazing Christian thinkers who have really shaped my own thinking over the years. So, yeah, that was that was sort of how I ended up writing my first book, which was really a case for Christianity. Yeah. Um, and, and since then, you know, things don't stay the same. Um, and there's there's so many ways in which that, as I say, that conversation has moved on, actually. And that's really where where the second book picks up the story in a way. Yeah, I was I was struck. Wow. We're we're going to get to a lot of <laughs> we're going to get to a lot of what you have just mentioned as we as we go through our time together. Um, <clears throat> I was struck by how in, in your first chapter, which you kind enough to give me a preview on, in your first chapter, you uh, it gradually becomes clear to the reader that the debate is not necessarily just, you know, a debate of, you know, on the value of you know, science or something along those lines. It's in fact much bigger. It is really a a dialogue of of two differing worldviews. And the problem that I think a lot of um a lot of people who maybe at one time were captured by the new atheists is that the morality that they espoused was in fact indelibly impacted by the Judeo-Christian worldview which they were trying to jettison. Mm, mm. And that's uh, that's something that I think we can get into maybe in a little bit. But um, I was I, I was struck by that that so you we you know we have attempted to throw out the uh, throughout the bathwater and the baby has gone mm. along with it 
mm. in some ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think that's right. I think some of the most helpful um, thinkers in this area have, have emerged recently to sort of start to push back on some of the assumptions of the new atheists. I think a lot of the new atheist speakers kind of didn't really critically examine their own belief structure or worldview mm. and and fail to realize i think how much actually their own worldview has in fact been shaped by the christian worldview that they reject um and so you have you know these days some really interesting thinkers like <clears throat> tom holland the historian uh, mm -hmm. whose uh, book dominion has been referenced many a time now on the unbelievable show another podcast i host yeah. um and and really just pointing out that actually all of the moral instincts of the west that most people take for granted be they human rights equality dignity compassion consent uh they really did not exist before the christian revolution happened and mm -hmm. that that is what essentially has given us these these things that i think many atheists and skeptics secularists sort of assume are just sort of the product of any civilized society but well there have been many societies in history and in the present day that do not have those values um and and it's very hard i think to to kind of uh pull apart you know tom holland's thesis that actually it it really does boil down to the fact that the christian story specifically changed the way we think about what it means to be human so so that's been an enjoyable part of of you know i think some of the pushback against you know the the, the new atheism and so on has has been thinkers like holland saying well hang on what um let, what do we lose potentially if we you know reject the christian story wholesale because at yeah. the end of the day it, it has formed the basis on which we're even criticizing the bible you know if dawkins you know rails against the immorality of the bible he's essentially doing it from a christian viewpoint right. he's using the morality that the christian worldview gave him to critique the bible so there's a lot of kind of interesting sort of circularity and arguments in that way you know um, that, that it's, just, it's just hard to escape the fact that we are a product of, you know, 2000 years of Judeo-Christian culture. Very true. Very true. I was an undergraduate at a private Christian university here in the U.S. when I first encountered the new atheist. Mm. Uh, maybe I was in high school at, at some point, early 2000s, early to mid 2000s. And I admit I was initially intimidated by, um, by their work. I, I distinctly remember a, a few occasions where I think I was in a and a Barnes and Noble, you know, when people would still go to bookstores and <laughs> not to, not just buy all their books on Amazon or through uh, through other websites. But I, I remember seeing seeing books like the God Delusion and God is Not Great and things like that. And uh, I, as a as a young man in in the youth group who uh, who loved loved the Bible and loved God, I uh, I remember feeling uh, you know, a, a bit of a weight. That I I, just, I don't know that I can respond to these kinds of issues, and I I was nervous. I, in fact, uh, at some point in college, I grabbed. Um, I'm looking over it uh, on my bookshelf. Um, Alistair McGrath's The Dawkins Delusion, and mm -hmm. I read that book prior to reading Dawkins's The God Delusion because mm -hmm. I wanted to know. Um, mm -hmm. I think I've got another book. Of the, the Rage Against God by Peter Hitchens, brother of yeah, the late br brother of yeah Christopher, Christopher Hitchens. Hitchens. Uh, so yeah. I, I was reading the responses before reading the critiques, um, you know, because that's where I was in my faith. And then, ironically enough, I ran into the podcast of the fortunately now disgraced Ravi Zacharias, who at mm -hmm. the time in the mid two mm thousands -hmm. and twenty ten early twenty tens 
he was um, he was an eminent star in Christian apologetics. Mm. I his his materials gave me some some hope because you know here here was someone making cogent arguments about yeah about sure. faith and about um you know against the new atheism. Uh, let's start off with asking uh, what eventually led to the rise in the n- new atheists. They they didn't just come on the scene out of nowhere. You know what what actually led to their rise in prominence? Do you know? I think there's a few different factors. It's not as though atheism didn't exist before them, R- right? Um, you yeah, know, there'd, there'd been plenty of sort of secular, you know, secular culture had been you know yeah. making inroads in the West for a long time, um, throughout the 20th century, really. But I think the new atheism represented a new kind of more dogmatic sort of public form of atheism. Whereas I think maybe atheist intellectuals were more confined to academia and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the, yeah, in the early to mid 2000s, suddenly you had this swathe of, uh, best-selling books, you know, the God delusion, by Richard Dawkins, God is Not Great, by Christopher Hitchens, Letter to a Christian Nation by Sam Harris, uh, Unweaving the Spell, Daniel Dennett. These these were, you know, those four names, of course, represented what was sometimes called the four horsemen of the new atheism. And these Curiously, were, a biblical metaphor. Yeah. Yes, yes, ironically, yes, um, <laughs> which I do point out later on in, in my book, in my new book, actually. But the, um, the, the funny thing is that they were all, in a sense, um, public intellectuals. Uh, they were you know, at least a couple of them kind of, you know, came from a more scientific kind of background. Mm-hmm. One of them was essentially a, a rhetorician, Christopher Hitchens, probably my favorite of all four of them, in fact. But um, they were responding, I think. The reason I think they came to prominence in their books and writing and in due course, you know, TV shows and conferences and everything else um, was because uh, September 11th have happened. Right. And I think that really woke a lot of people up to the fact that there could be a really dark side to religion. And I think a lot of the writing that that, that happened uh, in those mid-2000s by the New Atheist was in response to that kind of religious extremism. And a lot of the memes, you know, that started to appear, you know, on the internet thereafter essentially referenced that, you know, science flies people to the moon, religion flies people into buildings, you know, that kind of thing. Right, um, yeah. So there was that that kind of response. And at the same time, I think there were some culture wars going on um, that are a little bit more in the back mirror now. But um, at the time, there were concerns, especially in the US, around the teaching of creationism in schools. That There was the Dover-Kitzmiller trial around intelligent design, whether that should be kind of allowed to be you know, taught alongside evolution mm-hmm. in classrooms. So I think some of these figures, especially people like Dawkins and Co., were feeling like there was religion was sort of starting to threaten rational scientific inquiry um so that was happening you had um you know probably uh yeah a very prominent christian president as well in george w bush at the time who who i think a lot of people somehow associated with being potentially a force uh, you know for the, you know some kind of religious sort of aspect or uh, re- yeah. redenomination or something in the us so i think a number of those factors came together and and probably the most important factor of all was really the blossoming of the internet in the early 2000s, which allowed a lot of otherwise disparate groups and people to suddenly come together in, in a real way so that you could form essentially an atheist community online. Yeah. Whereas before, you know, 
atheists you know might somehow get together in local chapters or something if they were really committed you had to to subscribe to their magazines you had to subscribe to skeptic or some of these other things yeah exactly the internet just made it far easier to find people who felt the same way as you you know i think probably the the atheist chat rooms of the mid-2000s before social media came into its own were probably some of the most sort of vibrant you know it was the place where people went you know to 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 talk about and meet like-minded people and all of this i think you know catalyzed this new atheist movement gave it a lot of force and was able um to to see you know some of these star players in the movement fill out big auditoriums you know when they came to speak um it it saw a lot of the the emergence of a lot of these kind of skeptical conferences um it saw obviously this publishing trend sort of mm-hmm. uh this kind of anti-theistic publishing trend a lot of the opinion pieces in the newspapers and things like that so um and and probably the zenith of it here in the uk was around 2008 2009 when there was this sort of atheist bus campaign you know this was when it almost reached its most <laughs> religious sort of right version of itself when when we literally had buses circulating in london sponsored by british humanist association and richard dawkins that basically that, that spelled out the words there's probably no god now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Mm-hmm. And um, and maybe the equivalent in the US was the Reason Rally in 2012, I think it was, um, where essentially, you know, the mall in Washington, D.C. got uh, filled by atheists and skeptics kind of, when, you know, with, again, some of these star people on the stage denouncing religion and, you know, cheering for science and rationality. So it was, it was, yeah, it, 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 I'd say that was kind of the high point, you know, towards the end of the 2000s, um, when, when really a lot of people seemed to think this was what was needed to kind of clear away the sort of superstition and the problems associated with religion. Yeah. A couple of, couple of points here. Um, one thing I want to mention, let's return to it because the second point is, is what I want to actually discuss. One, it, it's amazing to me how, and and you really pick up on this uh, as you go through your first chapter. It's amazing to me how religious much of this wave of new atheism has become or or became. And so I, mm. I want to return to that in a moment. Two, what do you think began uh, leading to some of the cracks within the new atheism? Mm. Well, I think in the whole of the book, one of the main things I want to point out is that people are inherently religious. And just because you, you know, discard one form of religion, say Christianity, mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you're not going to pick up another kind of quasi-religious sort of beliefs. And Re- religion and, here and in it, this context would mean those guiding principles that one yeah. lives their life by, whether they claim it's or some transcendent power or mm. some uh, some transcendent force like well science there's uh, there's a yeah. there's a dog food commercial here in the United States that talks about you know all you know all the benefits of this the nutritional benefits of this particular uh, dog food and the tagline at the end of the commercial is uh, um science did that <laughs> and, and I'm looking there thinking like science is a a rational personal force that, <laughs> yeah, that yeah, creates yeah, dog yeah. food ex nihilo <laughs> that's what and, it seems uh, like it, and, and it often is spoken of you know that that 
I've met many skeptics and atheists who who do reference science as a sort of, um, as I say, quasi mystical thing, deserving of our awe and wonder. Certainly, you know, what it reveals to us about the universe we live in and that kind of thing. That I think sometimes the sort of religious awe is replaced by a, a kind of yeah a, another kind of awe and mystery that mm -hmm. is evoked by the pursuit for truth and um, you know order and purpose in the universe and that kind of thing. Um, though, of course, you know, a, a thoroughgoing atheist would say there is no ultimate purpose or meaning there. It's just what right. we impose upon the universe. But but having said all that, you know, th th I still found in in so many of the corners of that movement that it was, as I say, quasi-religious in the way that it was expressed. So it mm -hmm. felt a bit like, you know, Dawkins and co, the four horsemen, were almost the high priests of a movement. They had their sacred texts, which were these best-selling <laughs> books that they wrote. There were certain creeds, you know, that if you transgressed them or questioned them, you could be ejected. You could be a heretic. You know, if you if you diverge from the essentially the materialist philosophy that all that exists is matter in motion. There was a pall of orthodoxy, there. right? Yeah, there, yeah. You, you don't yeah. go beyond these. Yeah. It, yeah. And great. and some of the, you know, people who perhaps they had been friendly with, like um, I'm, I'm thinking of um, philosophers. There were there were just a number of people who were expressing potentially what would have been deemed to be, you know, unorthodox views. Perhaps there was some kind of teleology in the universe. Perhaps there mm. were ways of understanding life that didn't simply boil down to um, a purely mechanistic, materialist version of reality. <laughs> and they's, they got rounded on with unswerving zeal, really. They were mm. immediately, you know, as it were, shouted down and told, don't be ridiculous. Um, so what what it it increasingly appeared to me that that this while they said they were open to sort of evidence and where you know uh, and reason it, there was a kind of a, a certain ideology that you had to accept a priori if you were to kind of be part of this new atheist movement and that was this idea that material naturalistic materialism was was all that was um and and as I say, uh, it, it, it was interesting to see the, the almost religious fervor with which that was uh, that was guarded. But um, but but as I say, people are inherently religious. And, and even when the new atheism began to pass and we'll talk about, you know, some of the reasons why it started to show cracks and start started to implode on itself. It was only replete, replaced in a sense by other, in my opinion, ideologies that had another kind of religious flavor to them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, the question of what, why, why did it start to, to crack? I, I'd say the crack started showing, I think around 2011, there was something called that in the atheist community got referred to as uh, Elevator Gate. This and was a fact. This, this was fascinating. I, I had not read, I, I had not heard of that. I've heard of Gamergate. Yeah. And um, I, at one point, I think maybe Apple released a new iPhone that bent a little bit. And so, Bendgate was <laughs> was a thing for well, about every, a week. everything gets gets you know appended with the word gate doesn't it now who knew um, watergate would be so exactly. watershed in just, I, exactly, just yeah. the terminology uh, so you know that if anything ends now with the word gate it suggests there's some kind of controversy it's a juicy controversy of, that's just yeah, waiting exactly. for twitter to jump on it, it. yeah exactly so, so elevator gate happened elevator gate yes and just for those who don't know the, <laughs> the the inside baseball as it were of of the new atheist movement this was um a a popular 
skeptical blogger called Rebecca Watson, who ran a website called Skeptic. And she was among a number of people who were contributing to a atheist sort of conference mm -hmm. um, back in 2011. And she was raising concerns at the time about the fact that the atheist movement was dominated essentially by men. And that very often the both the, those leaders and the people attending the conferences and, you know, were, were pretty actually pretty um, derogatory, uh, misogynistic in some ways, uh, sexualized women. Um, and she was calling for basically the atheist movement to kind of up its game when it, in terms of the way it treated women. Um, now, she had just delivered a talk along these lines at one such conference um, and was uh, after sort of having drinks at the bar with some of the other uh, speakers who included Richard Dawkins at this particular conference, she she went off to her hotel room and uh, a one of the attendees of the conference was in the elevator and essentially propositioned her. And she she wrote about this afterwards and said how she could hardly believe that after you know, giving these this talk about the problems with um, sort of this stuff in the atheist movement that this person had then essentially done exactly what she'd been talking about in and um, and that perhaps would have been the end of it, except that Richard Dawkins commented on this particular blog, which was doing the rounds. And rather than sort of empathizing with Rebecca, he wrote a highly sarcastic blog himself called Dear Muslima, in which he sort of parodied you know, the fact that really um, bloggers like Rebecca had little to worry about compared to the concerns of say, oppressed Muslim women in other countries and essentially saying, come on, get over it. It was just someone asking if you'd like to go back for coffee to their room. You know, uh, is this really, you know, worth worthy of um, making a big deal of, you know, and and that, of course, just poured gasoline on the whole situation, because once Richard Dawkins sort of weighs in on something like that. That's odd. That kind of way, Dawkins is normally yeah. so measured and careful with his I, I know. Who would have thought? Um, <laughs> <his tweets. laughs> I mean, and. And actually, as you uh, allude to there, this was one of a number of sort of gaffes and controversial statements by Dawkins that that were increasingly doing the rounds at mm -hmm. that kind of time. And um, and what? But really, that that whole thing it was it was uh, it 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 saw the it was the the beginning, in my view, of seeing that the that atheist movement start to split into lots of different factions because there were those who came out fully in support of Rebecca. And said, yes, we need to rid atheism and the atheist movement of this kind of patriarchal assumptions and so on. And there were the others who were the kind of free thinker, let's just, you know, tell it like it is, who who hated the idea of lots of ideologies and feminism and whatever else coming to infiltrate them, their free yeah. thinking oasis. Yeah. And um, and people who had formerly, you know, been happy to share a stage together suddenly became arch enemies, you know, as as they split over this issue. And then there were multiple other issues that came to dominate. And um, essentially, I think the new atheism became a victim of what we now call the culture wars, um, because mm -hmm. I think what had happened was in the end that after agreeing that God didn't exist and religion was bad for you, the problem was that the atheists of that movement quickly found they agreed on very little else. And especially what this new movement should look like or represent. There were those who wanted to take it in certain ideological directions that they wanted this sort of atheism plus, as as it was sometimes called, where you were not just an atheist, but you were also a feminist and you were an anti-racist and you stood up for LGBT rights. And others who thought this was dreadful, that all, all that being an atheist meant was simply denying God and maybe being pro-science. But we didn't need all of this extra stuff on top of it. And very quickly... 
the whole movement developed into these warring factions who were spending more time um, throwing rocks at each other than the Christians that they used to kind of have as their prime target. So, so it was it was interesting to be a sort of somewhat something of a bystander at the time because I was you know interviewing some of these people involved in this stuff, yeah. talking about some of it on the shows to see the way the movement did sort of yeah sort of begin to implode in that way and and it only kind of accelerated as time went on and and eventually you know became something of a shadow of its former self um the the books the book contracts dried up no one could agree to appear with each other on stage so the right. 80s conferences kind of <laughs> came to a stop yeah um and i guess other things just took over you know the narrative moved on in a way and um uh, and I don't know exactly when you could say the new atheist movement kind of sputtered to a halt, but it's it does exist, of course, you know, still in corners of the Internet. But it's sure. as I say, it's, it's a shadow of its former self. Yeah, I I couldn't help as I was reading. <clears throat> uh, and for those who are interested in pre-ordering the book, please do so through justinbriarly.com. I'll have a link in the description below um, <clears throat> for those who are interested in in reading the book. Uh, we You cover a lot of this in your first chapter. And I couldn't help, as I was reading through your first chapter, thinking, wow, this, this is like a, a bizarro world mirror of a lot of public Christian circles today, where mm. you, know, you have those who would you know, argue, let's just keep it to what the Bible says versus those who want to embrace a number of other ideologies that have mm. developed over and, and developed and gained steam, particularly within the last 10 years, and you know, people who won't come to certain conferences, people who get disinvited mm -hmm. to certain conferences, people who won't talk to each other and so on. And I thought, wow, that is just, wow, that's ugly. Yeah, it, well, it there's, ugly. There's, a, there's a lot of overlap. And, and it's why, in a sense, you know, you could say that the movement did start to look religious because yes. one of the, you know, the most obvious things about religion is that it tends to split. Uh, it tends to often be divisive in, in some ways. And, and, you know, the New Atheist Movement was no exception um, in that sense that even, you know, I talk at one point in the chapter about the fact that there was certain parts of the community that wanted to almost emulate, you know, the church, you know, what you the value, the values you get from church. Um, mm -hmm. There were um, things like the Sunday Assembly here in the UK became a kind of church for atheists where they would just sing kind of inspiring pop songs and have a kind of uh, a meditation and uh, just community time on a Sunday morning for people who wanted kind of the communal benefits of church but without the supernatural stuff but even that experienced its own splits you know as soon as it gained steam so it's very hard to to sort of fall into all the things that normally happen when you start to look and act a bit like a religious community you know right. uh, you quickly realize that we're, we're it's made of humans who inevitably fall out with each other and yeah. um and it's hard to hold it together unless you've got something you know really strong at the center i'd say right and and, and the orthodox christian would say historically orthodox christian would say that thing which holds us together is the bond and love generated by you know the indwelling of the holy spirit yeah, mm, where that absolutely seems to be missing uh, from uh, maybe. Well, maybe I think the that's atheism. right. I, I, I mean, I, I obviously, you know, the church has its own catalog of splits and things, so it's not as though we can say, you know, somehow we've got the magic answer to this. But, <laughs> but, but yes, I, I would say where the church has, despite all, despite that history, also been able to hold something together that's been very precious, uh, even in often very diverse and you know distant parts of the, the whole globe you know where this thing this gospel 
that came from this one very specific place in the Middle East seems to be able to speak to and unite generations of people over time and different parts of the world and very different cultures. Um, what's the secret to that? Um, I would say it is something like, like what you've just described. Um, and without something as, as I suppose, transcendent as that at the center of your movement, you will struggle to hold people together because um, it's kind of just human nature that we we fall out with each other. We, we don't get on with each other. Um, and that's for me, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's one of the unique gifts of the Christian church is that when we're doing what we do at our best, we're showing that there is this bigger thing that unites us, even in all our diversity and difference and challenge and so on. Yeah. I think Genesis chapter four provides an excellent you know, example mm -hmm. of how humans tend to fall out with one another if they have lost oh, yes. perhaps their understanding of our you know, transcendence as image of God, you know, Cain and Abel is uh, mm. is a grisly case in point of yeah. this uh, this t human tendency, fallen uh, human tendency. Um, interesting too, this the um, the idea that um, that non non what would normally be termed as non religious, you know, whether it's new atheism or something along those lines. Has in effect become a de facto religion. You, I, I, I couldn't help but grin when you earlier in the conversation, and as I was reading your chapter, um, described the high priests of the new atheism, their sacred texts, and the orthodoxy, and things like that. It's like, oh, that's the, the analogy continually makes sense to me. Although years ago, I was I was initially very resistant to that. Um, I, I one of the things that I that I, I was most nervous about in um you know, as i was kind of coming to this uh, an awareness of christian apologetics and 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 learning to own my own my faith uh, in a way that i hadn't previously um i i remember hearing about a conversation that again you know Ravi zacharias in in the early in mid you know 2000s was um his public persona was was very different than what it has mm. become of late. Mm. Um, but I remember hearing him talk about a conversation that he was having with with some you know, some skeptic who was arguing that religion religion is inherently bad, and the reason why communist Russia was inherently bad is because that communist system became de facto religious. And I remember being very resistant to this, like, oh, that, that couldn't that couldn't be. I mean, they were devoutly atheists, you know, devoutly atheists. How how could they how could they be religious? I, I have since kind of come around on that and and thought that, well, no, I, I think it is legitimate to say that something like you maybe you at its height of cultural pressure and dominance, the the Soviet Union was uh, was in a sense religious. I think you could make a similar argument for maybe other communist systems in the world. Yeah. Mm, um, yeah. And what I uh, what I begin to notice is that right, it it cannot simply be that religion is bad, but is that what that what one does then with that religion? Mm, um, mm. In the month that we happen to be in June, there uh, I, I believe there is another religion that is beginning to develop called pride and i give this just as an example of you know mm. uh, of the sort of thing not necessarily a point for discussion but i can see how pride is developing into a you know, kind of a quasi religion right you've got mm. high priests and 
priestesses and um, you know, there may be sacred texts, but there's certainly uh, there's certainly rituals that ones yeah. uh, that people uh, perform the religious symbols and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, there's some overlap, but there's some significant differences. Is science as yeah. a quasi-religion that yeah. um, that we've been discussing? It seemed like when those two things tried to mix, as you mentioned, atheism plus. Mm. That provided an unholy mixture, and yeah. the, the um, it, there was some there was some uh, you know discomfort in in trying to mix yeah. those two yeah. things. Is that reasonable? Does it does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think so. And as I said earlier, I, I think it is it's it's our human predisposition to be religious. Um, and even though we may tick the non-religious box in a census, um, we actually um. There is something that is at the top of our hierarchy of values, to quote, you know, Jordan Peterson, that, mm -hmm. that, that it serves the equivalent of God uh, in our lives. And for some people, that will be some kind of something like pride, like, you know, and some form of LGBT ideology, because when you actually go and talk to and look at, you know, some of those identities that, that you know, people aspire to or say they are, um, there, there is a kind of it is a quasi mystical thing there there's a sort of um there's a, something sacrosanct for the mm -hmm. person who says you know that, that my identity lies in this it's it's very personal um but it's it's almost unquestionable as well it's it's a kind of uh, and so the it's hard not to see that as as having a kind of supernatural-esque religious dimension to it even if that person doesn't necessarily think of it in that way um and i think part of that is just it's just the fact that we are meaning seeking creatures. You know, we are storytelling creatures. We, we cannot live as free floating entities. Um, and that was what, to some extent, the new atheist narrative was pushing. Ultimately it was a kind of this idea that we essentially are just, you know, um, accidental collocations of atoms who happen to have got lucky on one particular small planet on the, you know, in, in the Milky way. Mm -hmm. Most people, that's they can't. Their life can't make sense with just that narrative of of them being just one more thing, and they have to give themselves some kind of a sense of of purpose and meaning. And as I say, in atheist circles, that was often through kind of science itself. You know, was right. was latched onto as that thing. You know, that thing that will solve everything. That will be our ultimate savior. That will kind of science did that. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and in you know other you know other ideologies and i'm not prejudging these ideologies i'm just saying that people always turn them into something like god um mm -hmm. you know when 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 they don't have god in their lives they they will make something else god and that becomes the the highest thing that 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 particular cause or whatever it is serves as serves the function of god in their life um and so for me while i Obviously, you know, I look at the same statistics as everyone else does about, you know, the decline in church going in the West, the fact that the Gen Z's and millennials are all rejecting organized religion and everything else. It, I, I don't get the sense that everyone's just turning into a sort of Richard Dawkins-esque materialist atheist. I, actually, the, the, the same statistics also tell you that quite a lot of those people who reject organized religion still pray quite often, mm -hmm. still engage in all kinds of interesting superstitious activity when you know at certain moments and have these very deeply held beliefs about you know inner identity and meaning and purpose and 
so i suppose my my hopeful thesis is that if you can get people to see the way that the christian story is a far better story than any of those other stories we tell ourselves that all those other stories will ultimately let us down you may just be able to show why this christian story has positively shaped so many people for so many generations and and that it even though it seems to have died off and gone away actually it might still be bubbling away under the surface because so much of the time the stories we are telling ourselves and the things we're putting in place of god once we find they just don't satisfy our ultimate sense of, of needing a you know identity and meaning and purpose we might end up you know cult our culture might swing round again to taking the christian story seriously again just, just as it did before so so that's kind of yeah in in a nutshell kind of for how i think that the religiosity that manifests itself might just be something pointing us back to the bigger story if you like yeah yeah well said i think i was listening to uh, a clip from uh fairly recent within the last uh few months before you um before you moved on from the unbelievable show um uh, maybe a gentleman and a lady who were discussing um <clears throat> religion in the workplace or, or discussing people in, in the workplace and someone cited some statistic like you know out of all of the number of uh you know, people in in this all particular office one he was the only Christian. The rest were either Satanists or something along those lines. I, I don't know if that rings a bell. Yeah, no, it does. I think you're referencing yeah one of the last shows I presented actually, if unbelievable. It was a big conversation between Rod Dreher and Louise Perry, mm -hmm. and they Rod Dreher is a well-known sort of Christian thinker and intellectual. Louise Perry, fascinating individual, and I, I think part of this interesting trend of secular thinkers who are coming to surprisingly Christian conclusions. Um, she wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, not as a Christian, but as someone who had kind of come through a sort of feminist sort of academic, you know, um, education, but came to see that the sexual revolution um, was actually a very bad thing for women and kind of surprised herself by coming to the conclusion that the Christian ideals of monogamy and chastity were actually there was for a reason. Uh, and that actually they might be the best way of putting the guardrails on, you know, what happens between men and women. Uh, mm -hmm. If, you know, people just go go the route of gratification and so on. Anyway, that's a bit of a side thing. Yes, you're right. They had this sort of this interesting exchange where I think Rod Dreher mentioned that in his experience, they uh, even if you were the only Christian in a uh, in an office, he said, uh, you you will rarely find that everyone else is an atheist or an agnostic. In fact, you're more likely to find a lot of esoteric beliefs, you know, floating around. Um, and uh, and that what's interesting is, you know, uh, there's been a real um, upsurge actually in number of people requesting things like um, rights for exorcism because they've been dabbling in you know, uh, the occult and things like that in the last couple of decades. It's it's almost as though when one form of religiosity gets shut down, people tend to always gravitate towards something, you know. Again, it's, you know, why do supernatural horror films continue to be so popular? I think it's because there's something inside people that what that there's part of us, if, we, if, we, if it's kind of getting squashed by a kind of empirical rationalist culture around us, 
our imagination still wants there to be more than that then that you know um it's why you know the the most you know the tales of superheroes and uh wizards and witches you know and harry potter mm -hmm. continue to be incredibly popular i think and so all all of this says to me that there's a kind of there's a deep spiritual sort of part of our personality that you can't just squash by telling people there's probably no god now stop worrying and enjoy your life it doesn't just go away by saying that um even if you convince someone at an intellectual level through a book like the god delusion that you know it's all pie in the sky fairy stories that the deeper sort of part of us that really responds to imagination and meaning and purpose doesn't go away um so i i, I suppose i'm hopeful rather like Rodreja was i think in that conversation that that suggests that you know christianity is not done with that that if we could that there may be a point there may be a tipping point where we reach where people come back to to the original story as it were the big story that as i say kind of all these other stories are but sort of little tributaries and sort of heresies mini heresies almost of of that bigger story you know yeah i like how you termed that the bigger stories the deeper stories um I was, uh, oh goodness, this was maybe a few years ago. I was watching a a, um, a roundtable discussion with some of the uh, most well-respected directors of movies within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it mm. included um, John Favreau and a couple of others and Ryan Coogler, the uh, gentleman who directed the uh, Black Panther movies. And um, I think it was John Favreau who um, who commented to Ryan Coogler about in in the Black Panther in the first Black Panther movie how there was uh, there was a depiction of death and resurrection and Favreau even said oh you're you're drawing from the old book with stories <laughs> like that and, and for someone like myself who sees that on screen. And recognizes all right, this this is a type of death and resurrection. Mm. Um, and then the reference to the old book is very clearly a reference to the Bible. Mm. I thought there is something within this story that resonates with a mm. a deeply felt need yeah. that even even in the guise of a, a you know a, a superhero king from a fictional country mm. can still represent something beautiful about the need yeah. for death and resurrection and um and that is you know a, a, just a microcosm of these larger yeah. stories yeah that, uh, it is and and i think I, I i think it's hard to estimate just how deeply in that sense the bible is is in our bones <laughs> culturally when it comes to the stories we tell we we are basically telling that story in a thousand different ways aren't we mm -hmm. um and and when we kind of diverge from that story interestingly it always feels shallow and sort of forced when we 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 kind of sometimes in our post one culture try to kind of <clears throat> invert the stories in some way we're, it's it feels like it's just a fashionable thing it's it feels like there is a story a kind of a way that life is meant to be that for some reason has been transcendentally captured in the story of Jesus Christ but what's interesting is is his story i think did kind of transform the stories that were told about god before that because i would say 
you know religion essentially before christ in the pagan world at least was was about essentially the rule of power and the idea of you know as tom holland says that the idea of a god becoming human wasn't exactly unknown you know the gods visited earth in in various ways in in the pagan stories what was unique was that that god died a slave's death that became the victim and that was unheard of that was a kind of because the the sort of conquering sort of warlord story was you know has always been around in that sense but when that got transposed by christianity into the death of a victim and through sacrificial death and love ultimate hope and victory is achieved that that i think created another kind of story which we are now kind of 2000 years later still telling uh, and and it's it's it, so many of our stories now reflect that story rather than that older story of the the pure kind of power kind of story of of god if you like yeah i mentioned a new testament professor earlier michael gorman um, I have used some of his works to you know, generate you know, Bible studies uh, here at the church where I where I minister, and one line in particular has stood out in his work on um, on on the Apostle Paul. He uh, he mentions how Jesus uh, Jesus conquered not by inflicting violence but by absorbing violence, mm. and I think that that in particular is what one component one significant component that makes Jesus's story stand out in the um in, in the vast field of uh, of pagan stories uh Jesus's the fact that he absorbed violence that yeah. God in the flesh absorbed violence in order to mm. defeat violence yeah that yeah. is um th- that self-sacrificial love is the is the basis right for yeah. um for these other stories and and the movements that have made the most difference in history, you know, the civil rights movement, were movements that sort of embodied that story, uh, the non-violent, you know. Mm-hmm. My fear is that in an increasingly post-Christian West, we're actually losing that thread, that actually we're, we're moving back in the direction of a, you have to, you know, use violent ends to achieve your means, essentially. Yeah. And and that's, I think, the great danger of, in a sense, losing the Christian story. Um, you You it's a fragile thing you know and and again tom holland has talked about this that that you can't guarantee that the you retain the fruits of the christian revolution without the roots you know how long can we continue to to keep going on you know with the values and virtues that he's given us without the story itself sort of that that has actually empowered it so so that's kind of one of the big questions i think hanging over contemporary culture is is whether we can keep going without that story being refreshed if you like from the roots yeah one quick comment and then one final question um mm. you mentioned earlier uh, uh, you know maybe a surprising uptick in the number of people who are requesting exorcisms and things along those lines because they have been dabbling in the occult i suspect that we will continue to see an increase in that very kind of thing uh, a friend of mine who wrote her uh, dissertation under uh, Dr. Craig Keener at Asbury Theological Seminary. Prior to the interview here, we discussed uh, my my academic background. She wrote on um, on spirit possession and um, you know, spirit encounters mm. in um, you know, basing her work off of many you know, secularist, you know, materialist 
uh, non-theist uh, anthropologists who have gone to various parts of the world and and observed things that you know, some of them are perhaps embarrassed or scared to publish mm. in peer-reviewed journals. Mm. And there's, I, I I suspect, because you know, nature abhors a vacuum, right? Because there's, um, if there has been a jettisoning of the in Judeo-Christian worldview, um, then the worldview where you know the worldview that's represented in the Bible, particularly demonstrated in the New Testament, uh, may may come in its place, which then we might see an uptick in. And some of the um, yeah. yeah, some of the more unsavory things that uh, yeah. that the Bible presents in uh, uh, yeah, I I agree, and and I think the problem is that if the secularists want to believe that secularism will somehow be enough for people, it that's not what history tells us. You know, as, as you said yourself, you know, when you look at what happened in communist Russia and so on it quickly took on a certain kind of religious flavor the and and like you i think you know there there's a sense in which um if you take away the religious story that has guided people for millennia another other stories will fill that vacuum and if the story of secularism isn't satisfactory enough and i don't think it is for, for most people um then other kinds of stories will will make their way in and some of them may not have the uh, the good qualities of the Christian story. Um, there are other religions out there, you know, there are other religions that could come to dominate in parts of Western culture uh, where you may not like the the values and virtues that, that are predominant in those. There might be other esoteric, as you say, occult type things that people turn to. Um, so th so it's, it's not as though, yeah, I, I think there's a great danger in just assuming that life will sort of carry on as is in the absence of the Christian, the Judeo-Christian worldview. Um, I don't think it ever has. Um, it's the, the, that, and people will kind of return to something. Um, I mean, as it, I think it was GK Chesterton who famously said, you know, um, when people, uh, you know, move away from God, they don't stop believing in anything. They potentially believe in, uh, they don't believe in nothing. They potentially believe in anything. Yeah. There, there's a sense in which, it it will that void will be filled by something and if it's not the christian story it'll be some other story yeah final question in your uh, in your book i i couldn't help but chuckle at um at the layers of meaning behind this line you uh, you you have a section there entitled thank god for richard dawkins <laughs> and it was maybe a tongue in cheek way to uh, to uh, acknowledge Dawkins is um, really the unintended consequences of Dawkins's actions and his, you know, just sort of who he is, um, for bringing the discussion of religion back to the public square, uh, mm. perhaps front and center in yeah. in the public square. That has um, you know, his the exposure of his worldview to the you know, to public critical inquiry. Has led uh, some others, uh, other secular thinkers, atheists, agnostics, to reconsider some of the value mm. of Christian claims. You have mentioned uh, a couple of times Tom Holland's Dominion. Mm -hmm. uh, prior, I think prior to the conversation, I also mentioned that I got to meet uh, N.T. Wright, who uh, mm. was on with you and Tom Holland discussing yeah. um, discussing Tom Holland's book Dominion. 
Uh, N.T. Wright mentioned that at the conference that I was at uh, in Houston, Texas, a few weeks ago. Mentioned, uh, you know, gave Tom Holland a shout out. Mm. Tom Holland, and uh, you also mentioned in your book, and I have heard separately, uh, Douglas Murray, uh, mm. who describes himself as a Christian atheist. Yeah, and uh, you know, an unbeliever who nonetheless acknowledges the indelible impact Christianity has had on his culture and his personal morality. What could someone? say to encourage someone like a Douglas Murray, someone who maybe acknowledges that their morality, that their worldview is largely shaped by Christianity, but they hadn't taken the next step yet. What could yeah. someone say to a guy like Douglas Murray to help them take that next step in fully embracing fidelity to God? And what's interesting about Douglas Murray is he he's an one of these interesting individuals who was very i think probably swept up in to some extent the new atheist movement uh, he was great friends with some of the key architects of that but i think he came to see fairly swiftly actually in as as the new atheist movement itself began to unravel that it wasn't answering the fundamental questions people have and i think he also went on that journey of seeing the way that actually it wasn't atheism or science or the enlightenment that gave him the values he cherishes in the West. It was the Christian story. He just couldn't deny that. What he did struggle with and what he said to me in, in interviews I've had with him is he he accepts that, you know, everything, you know, he owes all of that aspect to the Christian story, but he just can't commit himself to the supernatural claims of it, as it were. Specifically in Douglas Murray's case, you know, I think it could, because he did have a faith of sorts, um, up mm -hmm. until his early 20s i think but he lost it because he started to read the works of biblical critics who were questioning you know the reliability of scripture the story of jesus and everything else and the first thing i'd wanted to say to murray is go and read some of the latest scholarship on that stuff you might find that there's a more interesting more nuanced story to be told there read yeah. someone like richard borkham's book jesus and the eyewitnesses who i think i think murray was reading a kind of an earlier generation of biblical scholars um and actually there's been an enormous amount of work done that has really shifted the focus back onto the idea that we are dealing with real eyewitness testimony when it comes to the person of jesus so i'd, I'd ask him to and, and i'd also say given that you do believe douglas that the bible has irrevocably shaped the west that it has this almost you know in the way he put it in one interview you know, sort of quoting the philosopher um uh uh what's the name but um bloom he said you know, if we didn't have the Bible, we'd need a book of similar seriousness to kind of ground culture. And he, he really sees this as a sort of, you know, that that you, the Bible kind of really is responsible for it all. And am I, I guess what I would want to point someone like Douglas in the direction of is, is if, if the Bible has had this almost miraculous ability to shape and define the West for good in your eyes, is it worth taking the person at the center of it, Jesus Christ, seriously because of that and the claims that he made to be more than just a human. Um, and, and for me, that that would be the next natural step. If you if you do believe that, you know, atheism and he again was explicit to me in, when I interviewed him about this, that that atheist naturalism cannot account for our deepest desires, our belief in goodness, virtue, beauty, ethics. If the Bible makes far more sensible that if our the christian culture then why not take the next step and ask maybe this isn't all just some gigantic fluke coincidence but that there might be something that brings this all together 
And I hope that that Douglas and many others who are kind of seem to be somewhere on that journey have something like that C.S. Lewis experience of of where suddenly the 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 reason and the imagination all came together in the person of Jesus Christ. And and I I hope yeah we we will see many more of a kind of road to Damascus type <laughs> experience of yeah. some of these thinkers who seem to be on that road but haven't quite you know been knocked off their horse just yet. Justin, not to uh, not to place too great a burden on you, but maybe you can be the Tolkien of these guys, Lewis, <laughs> and bring them in. That is far too great a burden. I'm <laughs> funnily enough, I'm I'm just rereading um, the Lord of the Rings at the moment and appreciating again how brilliant Tolkien was. Obviously, yeah. Um, and uh, and it's yeah, we need that though. We need. I've been doing apologetics, as you know, Kevin, for you know best part of twenty years now. And it was all formed in that very highly sort of left-brained kind of world of arguments for God mm-hmm. um, that was kind of, you know, needed, I think, at the time when we were responding to Dawkins and the God delusion and so on. What I've increasingly realized, though, is that that, that alone won't bring people to, to living faith. Um, and what Lewis did so brilliantly and Tolkien was fusing the imagination with with that intellectual inquiry. And, and I think... Um, I think we're now at the stage where there's lots out there. I think there, if you want, if you're looking for good intellectual arguments for God, you're spoiled for choice at this yeah. point. But yeah. that, but in the end, it's only when we fuse that with people wanting this story to be true that that we're really going to see a difference made. And and that's where I think so many of these thinkers are are, are at. They've realised that people want a bigger story to be part of. And I think the church stands at an amazing opportunity when. The, the the secular naturalist story has kind of it's run out of steam it's not you know we're living in a meaning crisis we're living in a with more technology and resources at our fingertips but people are more unhappy depressed anxious than they've ever been before uh there is you know and and i truly believe that that the thing <laughs> that, that that is at the center of this that needs that could come back in you know like the coming back in of a tide and that's the kind of central metaphor of my book mm-hmm. the idea that the tide could yet come back in on faith um that the the church stands you know ready um to to potentially welcome a, a, you know an influx of people who from that meaning crisis who are ready to believe again and um and we need to be careful that we're not simply answering the same questions of Dawkins and co from you know 15 20 years ago but we're we're looking at the things that people want answers about in this new era that we've we've entered yes sir justin where can people keep uh, keep up with your work well the easy place to go is justinbriley.com that's my website um you can find links there to the new book the surprising rebirth of belief in god doesn't publish till september but you can pre-order it now and uh, you can sign up and keep up to date with my new projects as well uh, via my uh, newsletter there as well um uh, it's it's been an absolute ball hosting the unbelievable show and the big conversations and asking to write anything for the last uh, 15 plus years but um i've moved on some really exciting new projects there's a new podcast called re-enchanting that people can get hold of right away and there's some new podcast projects in the offing as well some other conversations and of course the book so it's all there at justinbriley.com wonderful justin thank you for your time sir really appreciate it bless you kevin thanks for having me on mm-hmm.